ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of Acts. And as you do, happy 4th of July weekend. I hope you uh, get to enjoy uh, some fireworks uh, with your family, some hot dogs, some burgers. Uh, in our case, uh, pulled pork right off the smoker going in about 11 o'clock tonight and come off sometime around lunch tomorrow. But in preparing for this sermon today, I, I couldn't help but reflect upon how as we as a nation celebrate the, the birth of our country uh, this weekend and tomorrow, our text today will have us remembering and celebrating the birth of the church. Fourth of July focused upon this nation and Pentecost focused upon all the nations. So as we think about the nations, you ever had ever, ever attempted to have a, a conversation with or simply try to communicate with somebody who doesn't speak English? We all have, right? At one time or another. It, it's difficult, right? When you're, when you're trying to talk with somebody who doesn't speak the same language. And have you, have you ever noticed what our tendency or what we're tempted to do when we have difficulty communicating with someone? If you start thinking about what we're tempted to do, like, I've done it, and I've, I've witnessed it done um, here in the States. I've witnessed it done in other countries. When there's a difficulty in communication, we as Americans are tempted to do two things. Speak louder and slower. Looking at the person and being like, okay, let me try it this way. Can you understand what I'm saying now? You know what that looks like, right? Again, I'm not proud of this. I've done this. Not exactly that extreme. So I'm not picking. Well, I am picking. Because when I see someone do this now, in any capacity, I'm thinking, bless their heart. Like, really? Why? Because, one, the person that we're attempting to talk to or they're attempting to talk with likely isn't deaf. <laughs> That's not the problem. Nor are they dumb. They may, in fact, be more educated than we are. They, they just speak a different language. And speaking louder... And speaking slower isn't going to translate our English into some other non-English speaking language any more than them speaking louder and speaking slower is going to speak, translate whatever they're saying into English, something that we can understand. It just makes us look dumb. And actually can unintentionally belittle the person that we're attempting to talk with or talk to. So there's no hiding from the reality that language barriers make communication difficult, don't they? Anytime there's a language barrier of any kind, it makes communication difficult. It has for thousands of years. This language barrier originating where? The Tower of Babel. We're going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, where we're told that the whole earth had one language with the same words. People migrating the east and 
than settling together, looking to build a city, looking to build a tower uh, with its top into the heavens. Why? Why are they looking to do this? So they can make a name for themselves. That's what the text tells us. Lest they, Genesis 11, verse 4, lest they be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to be scattered. They don't want to be gone all over the earth, which doesn't sound at all that bad, like coming together for a common purpose and a common goal. Until we contrast that with God's command in Genesis 1 and 2. God's instruction in Genesis 1 and 2 was was what? For for Adam and Eve to, to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over all of the earth. So it would be God's people multiplying and spreading and subduing all of creation into all of the earth. The the entire earth becoming one giant garden. God's people under God's rule, uh, his kingdom under his rule, under his authority, all over the earth. That didn't happen, did it? That's not what happened. No, because that doesn't, but that doesn't mean in that that not happening, that God's plan, God's instruction has changed after the fall. Nowhere do we see a command in Scripture to say, okay, everybody, just come together, huddle together in just one place as a people, and nowhere do we see a call to make a name for ourselves. It's always to make whose name great? God's name great. But what happened at Babel? We have a direct rejection of God's command from the garden. The people not looking to make the name of God great, but their name great. Not looking to expand over all of the world with multiple cities, but to build one city and one tower into the heavens. Which God responded to how? By confusing their language. So that they may not understand one another's speech. And then he dispersed them, where? All over the face of the earth. He's like, okay, if you're not going to go out, I'm going to force you out. You want to huddle together, I'm going to force you out. And then he sends them out. And then the people who actually do speak the same language, what do they do? They cluster together and they form cities. And other people who speak the own language, they cluster together and form other cities. But it's this confusion that we're still feeling the effects of today. And we look to our text today and we we see this very issue in play. See, the 120 persons who comprise the soon-to-be charter members of the church in Jerusalem are all ethnic Jews. Thus, they would have spoken primarily Aramaic in their everyday life and then Hebrew in their religious life. Maybe a combination of both. Which means even if a Jew lived in in another country, they likely spoke a a different language or a different dialect in their everyday life, especially if they grew up there. Just as Christians today speak different languages in different parts of the world. But at the same time, the, the, the Jewish people all likely had some working knowledge of Hebrew in their in their life. So they possessed at least some common ground when it came to to language, understanding. But for most, it wasn't enough to to have a lively discussion. 
To be able to have a lively discussion, it's got to be your heart language, right? I mean, think about your dreams. Even if for those of you who have studied other languages, what language do you dream in? The one that's most comfortable to you. Most of us dream in, in English. So this wasn't necessarily their heart language. But at least three times every year, Jews from all the nations would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast or a festival. So Passover being the one that we're the most familiar with. And then Pentecost, the, the Feast of Weeks, which falls 50 days after Passover, would be the one that we're looking at today. It's also known as a Feast of Harvest or Feast of Fruits, First Fruits. And then there was the Feast of Tabernacles that came in October. But each of these festivals would, would bring large crowds of Jews from all the nations to Jerusalem to celebrate, which is an incredibly significant detail as it applies to the events that we're studying today and what we're looking at in the coming weeks. We're picking up in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Corinthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So no doubt this would have been a sight to behold. Would it not? To witness this, to experience this, this small group of Christ followers numbering 120 persons about in total, been gathered together as Jesus instructed, waiting for what's now been 10 days since the ascension of Jesus into heaven, waiting. And then suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. The promise has arrived. They are filled with the Spirit, and they begin to do what? They begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. People from all the nations who either live in Jerusalem who are, or have come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost are hearing the mighty works of God proclaimed, the gospel proclaimed in their own tongues. And they're amazed. They're perplexed. 
Some even mock. For those of you who are guests with us today, sometimes you're a guest on, on days where it's like tithing Sunday. <laughs> like, oh, thanks. You get to be a guest on Pentecost Day <laughs> when we're looking at all of this and, and these things. But what we want to do now for all of us is, is to take a closer look at, at what happened here and examine the significance both for the church then but also the church today. Like what does this really mean? Starting with how the people of God became the temple of God. The temple of God or the tabernacle serving as what in the Old Testament? Serving as the place where God dwelt with and among his people, right? And remember in the wilderness, the tabernacle was placed where? In the center of the camp. But it was always kind of this far, but no further, right? Holy separation between God and his people because of our sin, from their sin. It could only come this far, but no further, which meant as the glory of God would fill the tabernacle, fill the, the temple, only the right person on the right day at the right time in the right way could draw near. But what happens here at Pentecost? Sound like a mighty rushing wind. Suddenly comes upon the 120 who were gathered together, filling the entire house where, where they were sitting, filling them See, with the tabernacle or the temple, these folks wouldn't have been anywhere near the glory of God as he descended, as he filled the temple. They would have seen it. They would have known it was taking place, but would have been close or they would have died. But here, they're the ones who are being filled. Verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They're indwelled with the Spirit of God. So it's no longer God dwelling among his people, but within his people. Thus, this rushing wind serving as a reference to the Spirit, breathing life, bringing power into all who are present, just as Jesus had promised. But that's not all that happens, is it? No, as verse 3 tells us, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Which again recalls important symbolism from the tabernacle in the wilderness. The cloud of glory hovering over the, the, and descending upon the, the tabernacle. Signifying what in the process? Yeah, the, the presence of the Lord with his people. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, we see God's presence coming through the manifestation of fire, don't we? God's people being led by a pillar of fire as they exited out of Egypt and as they wandered in the wilderness. Before that, God revealed himself to Moses' house through a burning bush. We see God himself being referred to as a consuming fire. His judgment marked by imagery of fire. Thus the divided tongues as a fire resting above their heads suggests the power of God's presence is with his people. 
And the division of the flames that we see here in the text indicates that even when they're eventually dispersed outside of Jerusalem, because what is the call for them to do? To to go forth from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When that happens, God's Spirit will accompany them. See, as the gospel is proclaimed and disciples of all nations are made, God's kingdom will grow as a holy temple unto the Lord. The temple of God no longer being a physical structure found in Jerusalem, but a physical and spiritual people indwelled with the Holy Spirit, going out then into all the world, true then and true today. We who are in Christ are indwelled with the Spirit of God. We are a new creation. We are a new Israel. And as we take the gospel forth to make disciples of all nations, what happens? People hear the gospel. Some, by God's grace, receive the gospel and then filled with the Holy Spirit and become what? Temples of God. And as the gospel goes forth, being fruitful and multiplying, echoes of Genesis, God's kingdom expands into where? All of the earth. Every local church designed to serve as an embassy of the kingdom. Every believer serving as the temple of God, making known the glory of God into all the earth. So I ask you this morning, Is your life being lived to this end for the glory of God? If not, why? What is preventing this from happening in your life? Number two, the people of God become the mouthpiece of God to the nations. Because when the Spirit filled these 120 persons, He gave them the power to do what? to speak in other tongues. Now, of course, the question here is, what does this mean, right? That's the question, like, what does this mean? What are these tongues that are given, what do they give them the ability to do? To speak. Well, as tongues referenced here and referring, they're referring to audible tongues audible ethnic languages, dialects of nations that are presently there gathered in Jerusalem. We saw the list of them listed out. These 120 persons filled with the Spirit, then going out into the streets and proclaiming the gospel in the heart languages of the people who are present. They're speaking the language of whatever peoples that are gathered there. So just say the languages that we're familiar with, if they're Arabic-speaking individuals, then like Peter or whoever is speaking Arabic, and that person is hearing the gospel in Arabic. If it's a French speaker, they're speaking French, and they're hearing the gospel in French. All of the languages would go forward. That's what we see taking place here. This is different from what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he speaks of the gift of tongues. As what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is a two-step process. 
not a one-step process like we have here. The first step in Corinthians being the utterance of the tongue. A tongue the vast majority of people in the room could clearly not understand, no idea what was coming out of their mouth. So still likely in actual language, could be some other tongue. But either way, people hear it and all they hear is babbling. It makes no sense to them. They don't understand what's coming out of the person's mouth. Except for, in Corinthians, the interpreter. Thus, the two-step process. That's step two in the process of 1 Corinthians 14. The gift of interpretation being given as a separate gift then to someone to interpret the tongue or the language that someone else is speaking. Then that interpretation is used for the edification of the church and the conviction of unbelievers. But friends, what 1 Corinthians 14 is clear on is if there is no interpretation then scripture is clear, these tongues must not be used in the gathered assembly. Nowhere in scripture do, do you have the church gathered together, muttering ecstatic tongues that no one can understand. You find that nowhere in scripture. Why? Because the only thing people would be here in those situations is babbling, confusion which is only going to bring further confusion, not edification to the church, which is the purpose of the tongue. But all that being said, what we have here at Pentecost is not a two-step process. It's a one-step process. This is not ecstatic speech. These are actual languages being spoken. And let's be clear here. This is a miracle of speaking not hearing. The, the Spirit working through the believers to give them the words to say so that the nations will then hear in their own language. This isn't the 120 speaking one language or one tongue and then the, the crowds then miraculously hearing through in their own language. That's not what's taking place. It's the 120 miraculously speaking the language of the people, allowing the people then to hear the gospel in their own heart language. Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And it was at this sound, the sound of the gospel being proclaimed from the 120 that the multitude came together. And as you can imagine, when they came together, they're what? They're bewildered. They're bewildered by what they're hearing. They've never heard such a thing. And they're bewildered by the source of who they're hearing it from. Saying in verse 7, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Why is that significant? Because Galileans were known for being illiterate, uneducated people. So people are wondering, okay, how are these illiterate, uneducated Galileans, who include women among them, how are they out here speaking in our native languages? How do they learn all these languages? How is this possible? I believe 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
verse 27 provides a pretty good answer. As God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There was none of the 120 who were walking away that day being like, look what I did. They're like, and how did that happen? Where did this come from? The Spirit of God. The power of God. See, the gospel is going forth to the nations, not because of the intellect of the messengers, but as a result of the power of God. God using despised, often uneducated Galileans to to usher in his kingdom, to begin the reversal of the curse of the garden, if you will, to see what takes place from Babel going forth. Because again, what happened at Babel? The people came together, right? But they came together speaking one language to build one city, one tower, to make a name for themselves. And God did what? He divided their tongues, divided their languages, and dispersed them into all of the earth, forced them to go out into all the earth as he originally commanded in Genesis 1 and 2. Later, the people of Israel are formed, a people intended to be a a light to who? To the nations. They're to be a city on a hill, a bright light to the nations. But what did they do instead? They become like the pagan nations. They start adopting their idols and worshiping their gods. And at the same time, like Jonah, remember the story of Jonah? They don't want to take God's message to the nations. They want to keep it for themselves. Let's stay here. Let's keep this to ourselves. And what ultimately happens to Israel? They're exiled from the land. They're dispersed into all the nations through exile. God using persecution to move his people into the nations because God's will is going to be done. And now here at the time of this particular Pentecost celebration, many Jews are living in Jerusalem once again. Others are returning to Jerusalem to celebrate. And what does God do? He brings the gospel to the nations in their own language on the festival of harvest, on the festival of first fruits. The Lord sends his spirit to bring forth this first harvest, the first fruits of the church at Pentecost. God's got this whole thing rigged. (laughs) Like it's all working completely according to his design. And how do the nations respond? Number three, the nations respond with amazement, perplexity, and mockery. Look with me at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. And as we'll see, As we continue to study this event in coming weeks, some will amazingly believe. Some, in their amazement and their perplexity, they're going to be like, I want to know more about this. And yet others will mockingly reject, thinking these people are out of their minds. They're drunk. (laughs) Crazy. 
which is no different than any response that people give today to the gospel when it is faithfully proclaimed. Some are going to reject, even mock the message that we deliver. Some are going to want to know more. And by God's grace, some will amazingly believe. But what is absolutely essential, what is absolutely essential for belief to happen, church? They have to hear the gospel. They have to hear the gospel. Not in babbling words that cannot be understood, but in their own language, in a way that they can understand. Which means what for us today? One, it's the reminder that we who are in Christ have received the Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who filled the 120 persons in Acts chapter 2 is the same Holy Spirit who continues to fill the church today with his power. There is no believer today who hasn't received the Spirit of God in full. None. This isn't some event that comes later in one's spiritual life. Which means we have, we who are in Christ, we have the power to carry out the mission of Christ that he has given us. And we must rely on the Spirit's power to carry out this mission. Which requires what of us? Perpetual, ongoing, faithful obedience. Because number two, we who are in Christ are the temple of God. We are the new Israel. Fellow citizens with all of the saints, members of the household of of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone. And it's in Jesus that the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple and to the Lord. In Christ, in Christ, we are being built together into a dwelling place by God by his spirit, for God, by his spirit. This, friends, is the good news of the gospel, that we who are far off from God, sinners, have been able to draw near to God through Christ. We are now, as scripture tells us, the temple of God. Therefore, we must let the glory of God radiate from our lives and let his message be proclaimed from our tongues. This is the purpose for which we exist. Number three, we who are in Christ have a message to proclaim to the nations. A message so marvelous that even the angels stand in awe of this message. But the repeated question is, how can anyone believe if they have never heard? And how can they hear without someone making Christ known in their language? They can't. They won't. Which is why Pentecost shouldn't be seen as a reverse of Babel. Because before Babel, everyone spoke what? One language. One tongue. And after Babel, the languages were all divided by by God, right? And here, even after Pentecost, the languages remain to this day, what? Divided. The difference is that the gospel is now being proclaimed in other languages all over the earth. But not in totality. Why? 
Because to do so requires believers who are able to speak the language of the people so that they can then share the gospel with the people. See, the events of of Pentecost are miraculous, yes, but they're not normative. We don't come to Christ and then automatically have the ability to speak a foreign language. That would be awesome, right? Like you come to faith in Christ and you're like, I'm fluent in Arabic. (laughs) That's going to be awesome. Oh, I can speak French now. I don't know why those two languages are the ones popping in my head, but they just keep coming back. That would be incredible. But it doesn't happen this way. At least not commonly, not normatively. Learning another language comes through years of study and immersion, which requires much sacrifice and much effort. Countless millions of people today still do not have the Bible in their own heart language because there's no one yet able to translate the Bible into their language. Countless millions still haven't heard the good news of the gospel. Why? Because no one has yet taken the gospel to them in their heart language, even though this is why the church exists. Get this reality. They've got Coke. You go anywhere in the world, you're going to find a Coke can, you're going to find a Coke machine, you're going to kind of find a Coke bottle. But you know what they don't have? The gospel. A reality that should both burden us and motivate us to action. And not just globally thinking, but even where we live. Where there is a church presence. Church presence is you. The church presence is us. But even though everyone around us, everyone around us has access to the gospel, unlike other parts of the world, they don't all know the gospel. They're crying out for justice. They're crying out for the wrongs of this world to be made right. Just turn on the news. Perpetual cries and longing for justice. They're crying out all around us. They want answers to life's most difficult questions, but have no idea what it means for Christ to be the one who will bring this justice and to bring the answers that they are so desperately looking for. They don't understand. And it's our responsibility to tell them, which requires slowly and lovingly and patiently making sure that the words that they're hearing from us are true to Scripture and what we intend them to be, not what they think them to be based upon their past experience, their past understanding. So many, so many in churches like ours today will hear things like this, and maybe you even feel this way right now, and are left thinking, but what can we really do? What more can we really do? Because it it feels so overwhelming, does it not? The need feels so overwhelming. Here's what we can do. Here's what we must do in playing our part. One, these are subpoints. You're not going to find them on the screen. I got excited. I got several subpoints who are here. And so 
They're still outlined forms, so you can follow along and write them down. Number one, we must understand we don't have to be big to make a difference. We're talking about 120 people at the start of the church. So don't have to be big to make a difference. But you know what we must be? Faithful. We must be faithful. Can't have excuses keeping us from faithfully doing what God has called us to do. Number two, we must rely on the Spirit to empower us for the mission. We must rely on the Spirit to empower us for the mission. And friends, if we are in Christ, we have the same Spirit indwelling us who indwell the early church. We have been given the power to go forth and to complete, to go forth with the mission. We are the temple of God. And the only thing holding us back from faithful obedience is what? Faith. The only thing holding us back from faithful obedience is having faith to be obedient. Number three, we must pray in one accord for God to raise up missionaries, translators, church planters, and those who will partner with them to go locally and globally with the gospel. And in these prayers, let our prayers not be distant prayers for just some unknown persons to go. Oh, Lord, please send them. Oh, Lord, please raise up a people outside of our church to go or maybe somebody outside of my family to go. No, let us pray for the Lord to use us and our children to this end. Pray to the Lord that we would give our lives and the lives of our children to this end. Now, let me be clear here. This does not mean everyone is called to, to move permanently overseas. I wouldn't advise that for everybody. This doesn't mean everyone who desires to plant a church should just pack up and plant a church. I wouldn't advise that. But nor does this leave those who aren't off the hook. It could be our children and our grandchildren. It is to be our prayers. It is to be our support. It is to be our evangelism and engagement and outreach locally. Because this list could go on as we all play a part. But number four, we must pray for the lost to come to faith in Christ. We must pray specifically for the lost to come to faith in Christ. Watch the news with prayer and do so prayerfully. Don't turn it off and tune it out and ignore it because it's frustrating. Use it to guide your prayer life. Get a copy of the book Operation World and use it to guide your prayers for the nations. Just set a globe up in, in, a, in a place within your home and, and be able to let those countries become a part of your conversations as a family. Pray for your neighbors, pray for your friends, pray for your family, pray for the nations to come to Christ and don't stop praying until they do. And then pray that they'll persevere in the faith until the end. Number five, we must take advantage of training that is offered. When we offer evangelism classes or, or other equipping classes here as a church, take them. <laughs> Read books that are recommended and Practice, practice, practice. Immerse yourself in growing in these areas. Number six, we must give sacrificially to this end. 
I'm not referring to a, a certain percentage of giving, but sacrificially giving. That may be 10% for some, but for others, it may be far more than 10% of our income. But it will require all of us, not just a strong handful of us. Yes, we all want a building to call our own, amen? Something I believe now more than ever is an essential tool to a much bigger plan to reach the nations for the gospel. But for us to have a building that, we can, that can be used as a discipleship training center, if you will, a mobilization center, if you will, for us to continue to grow and to be able to see more churches planted and more missionaries sent and more disciples made locally and globally, it will require all of us to work and give sacrificially to this end. And church, the time is now. These things can no longer be, be seen as dreams that will one day be fulfilled, maybe hope so, maybe come along our way. We must take faithful steps now if these things are ever going to come to fruition. Number seven, we must go. Go where? Locally and globally with the gospel. Partnering with other like-minded churches and organizations to speak the language of the peoples and make Christ known in all of the earth. Why? Because this is why we exist as a church. This is why we exist as a church. If we're not working everything we do to this end, then what are we doing? And then lastly, lastly, number four, back to the normal set of points. Pentecost is a foretaste of God's kingdom. Pentecost is a foretaste of God's kingdom. How so? Look with me at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And as you turn there, consider the sound of the Spirit-filled church proclaiming the gospel at Pentecost. And upon that sound, what happened? The multitude came together from every nation under heaven. And some, some believed. Some wanted to know more and others mocked. But now look at Revelation 7, 9. This being after the church is once for all redeemed and sealed in Christ, when, when the number of the church is finally complete, what does God allow John to see? A great multitude that no one could number from, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But, but, but no, now notice how this, how even this doesn't appear to be a reversal of the language division of Babel. Do you see this? But every person in their own tongue, in their own language, crying out with a loud voice, what? Salvation belongs to our God. All the different languages crying out, salvation belongs to our God, which teaches us what about the differing languages of today. 
that even with the confusion that they now cause, there's a God-designed beauty and purpose to them. There's a diversity in this world that is beautifully designed by God, even in the midst of judgment. And this diversity is intended for his glory. See, we don't all look alike now, do we? And we are not going to all look alike when we get to heaven. Praise God. We don't all speak the same language now. And I find no scriptural evidence that we will all speak the same language in heaven. But we will be united in what is being said and who we're saying it to. And either we'll be given the ability to understand one another, because there's not going to be confusion, or we'll spend eternity joyfully learning to understand one another. But either way, the church, the church united in Christ, in all of our diversity, will in one accord cry out together, salvation belongs to our God. And heaven will rejoice. Church, until this day comes, we've got work to do. So let's get to work. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we contemplate these texts, we see your name being made great. We see your name going forth into the nations. And we cry out hallelujah. To even think that we get to play a part in this is so amazing. That we, who are once so far off, sinners deserving of your judgment, can be now the temple of God, indwelled with your spirit. Oh Lord, hallelujah. Salvation belongs to you. And you are worthy of all of our praise. And Lord, I pray that we will now be faithful to take this glorious message and make it known to all the peoples of the earth. For your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's continue in worship as we sing in response to the preaching of God's word.